We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Michael Fahey. Great to be back, Gavin. And with Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a flurry of election-related talk and other comments ahead of, during and after the 1958 Jingmen Artillery Bombardment Memorial, members of the Central American Parliament voting to revoke Taiwan's permanent observer status in favour of China, concerns that Beijing is attempting to meddle in the island's upcoming elections with import bans and an investigation into what China has described as trade barriers imposed by Taiwan, more calls for pedestrian safety as thousands of people took to the streets of Taipei for a stop-killing pedestrian pedestrians rally and the release of this year's Michelin guide selection known as the Bib Gourmand. But we'll begin with visits to Jingmen and election talk there, turning to plans for the outlying island this week. President Tsai Ing-wen on Wednesday attended her final remembrance service as Taiwan's head of state for those killed on Jingmen during the 1958 Second Taiwan Straits Crisis. Tsai burned incense, laid a reef and bowed her head in respect to the soldiers who successfully repelled the attempted invasion. Now speaking prior to a banquet for survivors and family members of those killed, Tsai said she believes a powerful defence is needed to maintain peace and she went on to say that Taiwan needs to continue to reform national defence, push for self-reliance and strengthen defence capabilities and its resilience. She also said that despite the expansion of authoritarianism continue to threaten cross-strait security and stability to this day, Taiwan now has the support of the international community for safeguarding democratic values. However, it was only the third time that Tsai has attended the annual memorial since she took office in 2016. Now, now moving on, KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoi and possible 2024 candidate Terry Gore are also in Jingmen this week. And speaking after attending a public memorial service there, Ho said war must be avoided at all costs and this can only be achieved through de-escalating tensions in the Taiwan Strait, which is key to securing stability and prosperity. He also announced plans to transform Jingmen into a cross-strait economic pilot zone and transportation hub to facilitate peaceful exchanges between the two sides of the strait, saying that he believes turning Jingmen into an economic pilot zone that offers tax incentives will help to track Chinese investment into the county. Ho went on to say that it will enhance the quality of Jingmen's major ports and increase the frequency of flights to make the economic pilot zones possible. And he also proposed that Jingmen become a medical and healthcare hub to maybe become a destination for Chinese medical tourists. Oh, and on Thursday, Ho said that he plans to increase the number of Chinese visitors to Taiwan and also resume direct cross-strait flights to 60 Chinese cities if he wins January's election. And he also said then he plans to increase the tourism budget to between 15 and 20 percent. Meanwhile, Terry Gore called on Beijing not to underestimate the Taiwanese people's resolve to defend their country, and he announced plans to provide at least 20 million US dollars in funding for initiatives to promote cross-strait peace. Gore said one of his plans is to establish the outlying island, that being Jingmen, as a venue for a regional and regular cross-strait dialogue. Now, according to Gore, he plans to establish a think tank and a new media platform to collect and disseminate messages from around the world that are conducive to cross-strait peace efforts. Now, on Thursday, back in Taipei, Guo, well... He went on to describe next year's elections as being about war or peace and suggested that people should vote for the right candidate rather than the party. However, he once again stopped short of officially announcing a presidential bid when quizzed by reporters, saying only that he's merely surveying the situation. Now, Taiwan People's Party presidential candidate Kerwin Zhe did not travel to Jingmen. Kerr instead chose to mark the 823 artillery bombardment memorial in Taipei by visiting the Martyr's Shrine, where he honoured the memorial tablets of the military personnel 
personnel who died then. And speaking to reporters there, Kerr urged the two sides of the Taiwan Strait to decrease hostility and engage in dialogue, particularly on issues relating to daily life. And on Thursday, they were all busy pretty much on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, Kerr said that he remains willing to talk with opposition political camps to work out winning strategies for next year's election. Oh, and he also said he'd like to talk over coffee with Terry Gwar. Yeah, this coffee talk thing has been going on for a while. Uh, I don't know what the difficulty is. Taiwan is not that big. Even if uh, you're in Jinmen, you could have met up, uh, or at least Ho and, and Go could, could have had coffee. Uh, the- Ho says that he showed up three times in front of Gore's house and was left outside waiting to have coffee. Yeah, that's I, not, that's I, not that's I, I, called hard to stalking, <laughs> not wanting coffee. He should know better as a, as a former police officer, right? Uh, the, the, the people of Jinmen are used to uh, politicians showing up months before elections and making elaborate promises about economic development uh, in, in Jinmen. And then it, it rarely comes to fruition. Everyone forgets after the election. Uh, so uh, who knows if any of these things will actually be implemented, even if Ho was elected on the outside chance that he is. Uh, his economic uh, zone idea, you know, again, who knows if it would come to fruition. It sounds a bit like uh, something that President Ma had proposed. To his, President Ma had economic zones as well. Uh, that idea wasn't particularly popular with opposition legislators at the time or with the public. Didn't really come to fruition. Uh, the you know, memorializing 823, it's another thing that's become you know, somewhat political. Uh, as usual, uh, President Tsai and the Democratic Progressive Party government struggle with this because they struggle with anything that has to do with the history of, of the party state era or uh, let alone anything that happened pre-1949 on the mainland. Uh, but periodically, there are a few things that uh, they wish to participate in from the history of the party state era or the pre-democracy era. And this is this has become one of them. Uh, I'm not going to begrudge President Tsai for only going to, um, you know, three times, you know, there two years was COVID. Uh, you know, she didn't go every year. If she did every year, to go every year, I'd probably be saying the same thing. It's being politicized. Um, but this being her final year or the final anniversary while she's president. So, um, she went, and it's appropriate for the for the president of the Republic of China to show up at this event. Jinmen has played a pretty unusual role this time. I think it's true, as like Ross said, that politicians do go there at election time, but the number and frequency this time, I think, has been uh, unprecedented. I guess it's got to do with the uh, seeing it as the front line of tensions between. China and uh, Taiwan. The 1958 crisis there, I think, has taken on kind of a mythical role in Taiwan's thinking about itself. It's a symbol of Taiwan having, as Taiwan thinks of it, successfully defending itself against great odds and with great sacrifice. And that's the spirit that's needed to... um, defend Taiwan in the future. So I think it's not uh, unusual for President Tsai to be celebrating it. What I thought was really interesting were some of uh, Hoyoi's comments there. Uh, he uh, suggested that he, he wants uh, you know water and gas links, but m- even more interestingly, he says there should be a referendum on whether or not to build a bridge between Jinmen and uh, Xiamen which I think would be a pretty 
bold step, and I'm not sure if most of Taiwan is really on board with that or not. It does occur to me that since Jinmen is so uh, pro-China and China is so important to their economy, that perhaps Jinmen could be a test zone for China's proposed one country, two systems. Uh, they could propose to the people of Jinmen that since they want closer relations, they can be a test case and see how they like it. They could have a referendum on that as well, Ross. Uh, legally, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, the referendum law, I don't think, allows for that kind of referendum. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But uh, you know, during the local election campaign last year, when Cohen just said uh, some positive things about the possibility of, of the bridge, he, you know, he, he was attacked uh, quite vociferously by the DPP. And then the, the TPP reminded the DPP that during the 2016 election campaign, then candidate President Tsai, uh, sorry, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, in December 2015, had gone to Jinmen. And uh, the DPP legislative candidate had said, let's build the bridge. And our party supports that. And she was like, yep, I like this guy. I like his ideas. Uh, so there was a history there where, where the DPP was not against uh, building the bridge. And then we, you know, we get into these discussions about you know, the security risk of having the bridge. I, I always thought that- They could blow the bridge up exactly. anytime if necessary. Yes, <laughs> yes. If, you, you could, uh, I'm sure someone's not going to like what I'm about to say. You could say the same thing about aircraft as well, right? If there's an air, if there's a bunch of aircraft coming across that are not identified as civilian aircraft, you all you have a choice of doing nothing or blowing them out of the sky. And the same thing would be if uh, you suddenly see- uh, a, a bunch of guests, a bunch of military vehicles, uh, you know, you, you, you blow them up, right? Uh, okay, I mean, we shouldn't joke about such serious matters, but uh, if if China, and experts debate this all the time, you know, whether or not China would, would take uh, one of the offshore islands first without necessarily including it as part of a, lo- a larger operation to take Taiwan Island proper. If they wanted to take Jinmen, they could. I don't think the bridge is really going to make a significant difference in their ability to to take Jinmen. It might make it a little bit easier, but uh, again, could blow it up. Uh, so, uh, if the people of Jinmen really wanted it, and any legitimate security risks could be addressed, um, then maybe it should be considered. Uh, the The Mini Links scheme has. You know, pre-COVID, that has not been a disaster. And uh, I, I would challenge anyone who would say that the three mini-link scheme that allowed you know, day trippers or short-term tourists from the mainland side to come over to, to Jinmen or Mazu, um, I would challenge anyone who said that caused a security risk or that people from China used the three mini-links to day trip over to Jinmen and then they, they snuck onto a boat or an airplane and came to Taiwan Island. You know, frankly, it, it just doesn't happen because there is, um, you know, you do have to go through a certain process to get on the boat or or a plane to, to come from Jinmen to, to Taiwan proper. Uh, so, you know, if, if that's what the people of Jinmen want and the security risk could be addressed, then uh, it, it shouldn't be used as, as a political tool the other way as well. But but again, that, that's what happened last year during the local election campaign. The DPP immediately came after Koenja for saying that the bridge should be considered. But who would pay for such a bridge, Michael? Because obviously if the Jinmen people vote yay in a referendum and the central government is, well, not quite happy about the bridge thing, where's the money going to come from? 
Well, I think Jinmen should join the Belt and Road Initiative, and the money should come from China. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think China would write that check pretty quickly. Anyway, moving on now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Tuesday announced that Taiwan had formally withdrawn from the Central American Parliament in order to safeguard Taiwan's national dignity. The statement came after the regional parliamentary body voted to cancel Taiwan's permanent observer status and switch recognition to China. The proposal to revoke Taiwan's observer status and replace it with Beijing was pushed by Nicaraguan representatives there, and they submitted the proposal on the grounds that most of the parliamentary body's members now recognise the government in Beijing as the only legitimate representative of China in the world and also accept that Taiwan is, well, a province of said China. Now, the foreign ministry has accused Nicaragua and other what it's calling pro-China lawmakers in the bloc of simply trying to curry favour with Beijing and for disregarding Taiwan's decades-long contributions to the regional parliamentary body, of which it had been a permanent observer since 1999. Now, US lawmakers also got all hot under the collar about the Central American Parliament's decision, with several of them condemning it as an attack on democracy, Michael. Uh, they did. I think the one of the, the most interesting thing about this whole episode was one of the reasons that Nicaragua cited for kicking Taiwan out. It wasn't just that Taiwan is not a member of the United Nations, but they repeated one of China's favorite talking points in recent years, uh, which is to characterize Resolution 2758 of the United Nations, which is the one that ended the Republic of China's uh, representation. And, well, they actually withdrew, but, but gave the seat uh, on the Security Council to uh, the People's Republic of China. And what, what they're misrepresenting about it, of course, is that that resolution never said anything about the status of Taiwan. It simply said that the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek were to be ejected from the uh, United Nations and the People's Republic of China was to take that seat. So Nicaragua's use of that argument, I think, is part of a broader uh, campaign. And I thought that was the most significant part of it. I mean, from the point of view of the Central American states, uh, I think only two countries in Central America now recognize or have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. The rest all have relations with the PRC, and they're getting a great deal of money from the PRC for various projects. It kind of makes sense in practical terms for the PRC to be the observer and not Taiwan. And Ross, of course, Moffa pulled out before they could be thrown out. Mofa, Mofa, Mofa. You were thrown out. <laughs> you didn't pull out. Okay. It's it's kinda like every time a country derecognizes Taiwan, Taiwan. You know, they they announced that we've recognized China and then Mofa says, Well, we've decided to derecognize them because they recognize No, they've already derecognized you. Uh we we don't need to play these 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 kinds of uh phony dignity games. Uh, you got thrown out. Uh but being a member of or an observer, I should say, of, of Parlison didn't make Taiwan safer. It, it didn't make Taiwan's uh, economy stronger? Did it make Taiwan's uh, military or political security any stronger? These countries are small. They have many problems. Uh, as Michael mentioned, uh, only two still recognize Taiwan, but actually uh, one of them, Belize, is not even a member of Parlisons. It's only the Spanish-speaking countries that are, that are members. Uh, so the only one in Parlison that still has diplomatic relations with Taiwan is, is Guatemala. And after 
the recent presidential election result. Uh, we'll probably be talking a lot on Taiwan this week about the likelihood of Guatemala derecognizing Taiwan as well. Um, so it, it's just it's just a practical decision. Yeah, the the mischaracterization of of the UN resolution got a, a lot of uh, attention, especially here since. We're, you know, here in Taiwan, we actually understand what the UN resolution said, um, and uh, I, I think, I, at the risk of seeming to take sides, to be fair to some of these other governments, they're not going to spend more than ten seconds trying to understand what the UN resolution said. It's going forward, this is irrelevant to them, right? They've decided to recognize China. They're not going to have anything to do with Taiwan going forward, and that's pretty much the end of the discussion. Uh, so, if China wrote wrote the statement for Nicaragua again, I, I, I don't expect you know Honduras or, or the other Parliament members say, oh wait, wait, you know we, we need to. Change the wording of, of the resolution that we're going to pass at Parlison to replace uh, uh, Taiwan with China as an observer. So, you know, MOFA or, or pundits like us could try and correct the Central Americans, but ultimately that doesn't matter. I'll make one final point. There is a U.S. law called the Taipei Act. Right which was passed uh, during the Trump administration. And people here got so excited because it came shortly after the Taiwan Travel Act. And the Taipei Act, um, to sort of summarize it, it, it doesn't really require the U.S. government, but it kind of encourages the U.S. government to take retaliatory action against uh, countries that do things that are not very nice to Taiwan. And uh off the top of my head, I can't think of uh, the Trump administration or the Biden administration actually citing the Taipei Act to take any retaliatory action against uh, you know, the Solomon Islands or Kiribati or Nicaragua or Honduras or now Parlison. Um, because just like the Taiwan Travel Act, the Taipei Act, and so many of these other pro-Taiwan uh, resolutions or legislation, they can't require the executive branch to do anything on, on foreign policy. Uh, so um, maybe... The U.S. will take some retaliatory action against these. I mean, Nicaragua is already uh, you know, sanctioned. In fact, Guatemalan officials are sanctioned. And these are the officials that Taiwan, the Thai administration, is saying are, are great democratic partners. Uh, but, but a whole bunch of Guatemalan officials have been sanctioned by the U.S. And they still have relations with Taiwan. Uh, but, but if the U.S. wants to sanction uh, the other countries, that's kind of risky because the U.S. needs their cooperation on, on migration and narcotics. Uh, so, uh, you know, life goes on. As I said, Taiwan's security really didn't depend on being an observer at Parlison. Now, I think Ross is going to disagree with me, but as far as Guatemala is concerned, I say good riddance. I think that a lot of uh, Taiwan's problems in Central America, I mean, I mean, the fact that China is writing the big checks that Taiwan can't possibly compete with is no doubt the driving reason. But it's also true that that uh, there's been a, uh, a movement to the left in Central America, and Taiwan has always been on the side of some of the nastiest regimes that have existed in Central America. Robert, the, the famous death squad leader, Roberto de Basson, was trained in Taiwan, and the, the Guatemalan government is uh, notorious for its uh, human rights violations, even if it's slightly better. Well, um, Michael, you might be days. surprised to know I've written many commentaries criticizing the Thai administration for its friendliness to Nicaragua before relations were discontinued to uh, the previous Honduran government, which is why the new government uh, within a year took revenge uh, because 
Taiwan was friendly to the non-democratic, corrupt uh, Hernandez government. And uh, I've written commentaries criticizing Taiwan for its uh, friendship to outgoing President Giamatti in in, your, in uh, Guatemala. So uh, no, no. I think yeah. the point that you're more likely to disagree with me is is that I think that these tiny little allies are a waste of money and time for Taiwan, and that I, Taiwan. I agree. Should, I, again, I don't think Taiwan's security or, or depends ta- ta- on these Taiwan. At all. Taiwan needs to invest more in substantive relations with countries like the U.S., Japan, the Philippines, uh, India now, uh, and not worry about you know, St. Lucia and the Kits and the Nevis and so on. Nothing wrong with the Caribbean. We're not saying that, though. The only problem, (laughs) though, the only problem, though, there is a practical problem. If Taiwan were to lose all of its allies in Central Central and South America and the Caribbean, there would be no more excuse for those transit trips to the United States. Well, that would be great because then they could come up with uh, a lack of excuse for to allow and the just visits. do it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it might actually be a, a positive. But but look, there's another aspect here, which is Taiwan. And, and again, Michael, I, I, I think your assumption, with all due respect, about me is wrong because I've been very critical of, of these relationships. Um, Taiwan, who's ever the president, currently Tsai Ing-wen, previously Ma Ying-jeou, Chen Shui-bian, they love the red carpet stuff, right? They want to have the gun salute for the visiting president or prime minister from those countries when they come here. They want the same treatment when they they go to those countries as well. Um, I, I think that's just a bit of a, a ego thing. I, I think it's also a hangover from the old party state days. Uh, one, a wonderful resource online is uh, Taiwan Today has old articles from the 60s and 70s. And you can read about state visits by people like Mabuto Sasiko or, or you know, various other uh, unpleasant figures from the past. And it's unbelievable how long and detailed these articles are in English. They cover Every tiny detail of protocol. Are, are you suggesting that President Tsai is, is adhering to some legacy of the party state era? <laughs> I think the it's in the DNA. It's it's not completely uh, the the uh, you know the Transitional Justice Commission needs to get on the case. <laughs> she is going to Isawanti Singh. Uh, and there's a few problems there, Ross. Yeah, there's been there's been some media coverage recently about uh, Chinese companies engaging in uh, or winning infrastructure projects there. Uh, and Taiwan send, sending helicopters to help the police. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there were protests there within the last few years before COVID. And Taiwan was you know, the opposition has been very outspoken in Taiwan's role in, in uh, supporting a hereditary uh, absolute monarchy and you know Taiwan is is the country that that's always saying democracy versus autocracy uh, but, but not uh, when it comes to Eswatini yeah well you know the king the king was here last October and then the prime minister was here in March uh, and that that should be concerning the head of state and then the head of government were, were here uh, within such a short period of time they weren't here for the food or the weather they were here for money and we'll have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Hey 
And welcome back to Taiwan this week. And the government has been crying foul in recent weeks over moves by China to ban imports of mangoes, to place anti-dumping tariffs on Taiwan polycarbonate, and to open an investigation to what Beijing has described as trade barriers imposed by Taiwan. Now, all this has led to allegations of maybe China's doing this because it's meddling in our legislative and presidential elections, Ross. It's easy to describe it that way, and I guess it's a easy way for uh, DPP to message the China threat during the election period. I mean, China would probably be doing this stuff anyway, as, as long as there's a DPP uh, administration. So unlikely they would do it if there was a Kuomintang Chinese Nationalist Party administration. Uh, but uh, if they weren't doing it today and Lai Qingde was elected, then maybe they do it a year later, you know, when, when they feel like uh, having, you know, it's, it's one of their tools, trade retaliation, uh, convincing a country to terminate diplomatic relations, et cetera, et cetera, military exercises. So it's, it's one of those things China could do to tweak Taiwan to make a DPP administration uh, uh, uncomfortable or make business uncomfortable, businesses in Taiwan, exporters, uh, if it's agriculture products than, than farmers, uh, grouchy with, with, with the government. Uh, so these kinds of things are going to happen anyway. I, I don't think it, 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 it uh, influences voter decisions per se. I mean, it might influence the voter decision of somebody who's actually in, in that specific supply chain. But whether it, it influences voters more broadly, I, 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 if there's a voter who was going to vote for the DPP, but now they're going to vote for the Kuomintang because China is threatening to ban mangoes, I don't think it's going to work out that way. I think it is related to the election, uh, basically from the timing. Uh, the the timing of the uh, at the moment is they've just made preliminary findings and they're going to do further investigations. So it will just be a threat hanging over Taiwan until after the election, which is when they will make the decision to um, end ECFA or not. ECFA is not particularly important to Taiwan. It only accounts for about 4% of exports. And the same goes for mangoes. Uh, the mango market is almost entirely domestic, and mangoes exported to China are a tiny part portion of Taiwan's mango exports, which aren't very large anyway. But the mealy bugs are a problem, if the mealy bugs exist. Yeah, uh, this has been the controversy with all the ag and seafood products that China has, has banned. Um, and sometimes Taiwan's been caught, right? That, that's what happened with, with some of the seafood products where it turned out that they were being exported from unregulated fish farms. And Taiwan was saying, but we checked everything. It's like, well, no, you only checked the regulated ones. But <laughs> the shippers, uh, to if they have an order, I mean, to, to sort of summarize it, if they had an order for uh, 200 kg of product and they only had 100 kg available from a regulated farm, they call up an unregulated fish farm and get the other 100 kg and throw it in the shipment together. And uh, you know, the, the Council of Agriculture eventually had to admit that, that, you know, that, that that's what was, was happening. Um, so it's hard to know the truth because China, on their side, they're not very transparent either. The two governments are barely talking to each other. The food regulators, ag regulators don't really talk or communicate other than getting a letter saying, we found the bugs and we're not letting your product in. Uh, you know, it does hurt the farmers a little bit, even if the dollar amounts are not huge for the overall uh, economy. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear about 
massive subsidies in developing the Japanese or Southeast Asian markets, even though those places already have sources for mango. <laughs> Moving on now, an estimated 25,000 people, depending on what source you read or saw on the television, turned out on the streets of Taipei this past Sunday to participate in said Stop Killing Pedestrians rally. Now, it was organised by the Zero Pedestrian Death Promotion Alliance, and participants at the rally called on the Thai administration to take concrete steps, including the systematic upgrading of pedestrian infrastructure improvements to driver education and an overhaul of traffic laws to protect the vulnerable road users, those being the pedestrians. Now, they also called on local governments to work towards halving pedestrian casualties by 2030 and achieving the amazing number of zero pedestrian deaths by 2040, which, according to the alliance which organised the rally, is in line with the European Union's goal of zero fatalities in road transport by 2050 Vision Zero. Now, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai accepted a list of demands, bowing to demonstrators during the event and saying his office will make improving pedestrian safety one of its top priorities. Now, Terry Guo was there, Kerwin Zhe was there, Hoyoe was there, they were all there, and Ross... Even the vice president, William Lai, Lai Ching-de, who, of course, is the DPP's presidential candidate, was there, which I found a bit odd because, I mean, was he protesting against his own party? No, I wouldn't see it that way. Uh, uh, first of all, I have to give him credit because th- this was shortly after he returned from his overseas trip. And uh, you know, rather than claiming he had jet lag or, you know, everybody saying, oh, Shinku Niwa, you know, it's like. God, he got to fly first class. You know, wasn't that Shinku? And you got to overnight in, in on both both ends in, in the U.S. So it really wasn't that Shinku, okay? Um, but uh, uh, he show up. He showed up to you. No, I wouldn't see it that way. But you, it's just something you got. I mean, everybody's for road safety, right? It's like saying, are, are you for clean air? Yeah, everyone's for clean air. Um, so I guess with the other candidates going, it was a little risky for him not to show up as well. This is a long time problem. Every time the government says we're going to do something or we're, we're going to in, you know, increasing the penalties. Uh, doesn't seem to have the desired effect. Uh, you know, it's an education issue, right? You know, people. Need I, to- I have noticed. A, uh, uh, I, I've always felt that that a fair number of drivers in Taipei, anyway, are pretty good about yielding. And since the enforcement campaign, I would say that uh, it's improved even further. It's, it's been noticeable. But it depends how long the enforcement go, exactly. goes on for, right? The, the police are going to get back on their scooters and scooter away instead well, of- Don't forget, they do announce them. We'll be having an enforcement campaign from Monday through Friday. So if you want to go mad, do it on Saturday. <laughs> you say drive like a nut on, on Saturday. Well, obviously, because the police have told you yeah. when they're enforcing these things. Yeah. Uh, and there, there's still a, a problem, unfortunately, with uh, driving under the influence or driving while intoxicated. You know, the, those tragic incidents are constantly in the news. There's also uh, periodically stories about young drivers. Look, uh, driving in, in Taiwan is uh, it's challenging. It, it's, it's not simply a matter of passing a road test and, and you're ready to go. Right, you need you need to uh, be confident. Ideally, you'd understand the the rules of the road. Ideally, you deal to pedestrians as well. Uh, but again, there, there are often accidents uh, reported involving younger drivers uh, as well who are who are not driving under the influence or not even necessarily speeding. They're, they're just unfamiliar with with uh, you know, the skills needed to to drive safely in, in Taiwan. Uh, again, I I think it's an education issue, and uh, I, I have. No confidence in Minister Wang and anything he says because he's the outgoing minister. So uh, yeah, he has, but how many more months 
um, in the job until next May. I, you know, I wouldn't expect any significant changes. So this is up to the next president and his administration. And at least they showed up at the rally. So maybe there is some hope that they would be personally invested in this issue when they take over next May. My argument here, though, is he could have become the vice president of road safety. Well, this issue, as everybody knows, only came to the fore because of a CNN article that called Taiwan a traffic hell. And uh, it's always hard to understand how these things work, but it really made an impression in Taiwan. I mean, this problem has been going on forever. Uh, and yet now, and there are all kinds of other problems. Uh, problems, you know, really, uh, if you look at the numbers, the numbers of fatalities from scooter drivers are far greater than the numbers from pedestrians. But pedestrians has really captured the public's imagination. Uh you know, I think it was uh, the, the the rally was nonpartisan. I think the pollsters and and you know political advisors told all the candidates that hey, this is important. There could have been a hundred thousand people out there if it hadn't been for all the rain. It, it was a big deal. You you kind of had to be there to show solidarity, concern, and sympathy uh, for the issue. Now, I I believe that this is something that Taiwan can do something about. Uh, Back in the, uh, you know, Ross will probably remember back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, the traffic situation, especially in Taipei, but elsewhere, was just absolutely nightmarish. Uh, to, today, it, it, you know, through a pro- programs of road building and the, the MRT and all kinds of improvements, uh, something that looked to me uh, completely unsolvable was solved. So I'm sure that Taiwan can do this. The, the, the problem with it is, though, is that this is a little bit like the social housing movement. Uh, if you, you go back many years ago, there were protests for the they, they were called the snails without homes. This was when uh, prices of houses skyrocketed in Taipei and suddenly people found that they couldn't buy houses anymore. And there was a huge movement and it was a big political deal at the time. But in the end, not much was done. And the reason was that like this pedestrian movement, the the movement is is coming up against powerful vested interests. Uh, in that case, it was property owners, and in this case, it's car owners uh, who are going to be who are going to react very strongly to any measures to do things like uh, narrow the the giant roads in Taipei or make certain areas pedestrian walkways. There's going to be enormous pushback. Uh, to things like that. So I'm I'm skeptical. Uh, I think we'll see some improvement, uh, more awareness, hopefully more yielding to pedestrians. Uh, but in the end, I'm skeptical that a systematic solution is going to be found. Well, on that sour note there, I, I, all I could say is look both ways before you cross the street. and um, Look at the cars. Don't look at the lights. <laughs> and don't look at your phone. Uh, and, and also... Uh, you know, keep keep a close eye on, on kids as well. I often see people uh, w- with young kids, but the young kids are behind them but when they're walking around on the sidewalks or, or crossing the street. This was an organised rally, Ross. Mm. Yeah. Now, had this been happening in Europe, mm. people would have taken more direct action and maybe chosen "Let's march down Zhongshou East Road today" to let the traffic know what it's like. Yeah, and uh, you can be arrested for marching without a permit. <laughs> But they wouldn't. They could technically be going for a walk. 
the other, you know, Michael mentioned uh, you know, pedestrian areas. I mean, that that's just something that exists in, in, in has existed for a long time in, in downtown of, of European cities. They just they have more plazas and pedestrian walkways, and even in the United States, that's becoming increasingly common as well. Or closing off uh, main avenues on, on weekends, for for example. And let's just uh, let me just give you. Sorry to interrupt, but let me just give you an example. Uh, Mayor Ke, to his credit, tried a pedestrian walkway walk zone in the Gongguan uh, sort of night market area. Uh, and business owners organized and got rid of it. Uh, my neighborhood, uh, I live near Yongkong Street, would be ideal for a pedestrian walkway. It's almost a pedestrian walkway by default. But business owners are deeply opposed to any uh, restrictions on their ability to take deliveries at any time of day or night. It That's does, the kind of problem we're going to run into. It does work in Shimending, though. There is a pedestrian walkway there, remember. It does, and it's interesting. It would be interesting to know how that came about, uh, because that's been that's been there for a long time. Mm, yeah. Anyway, before we go this week, this year's edition of the Michelin Guide selection, known as the Bib Gourmand, was released, and Tainan boasted the most newly awarded eateries. Now, ten of the city's restaurants are included in the list, which centres on establishments that offer a three-course meal for less than one thousand NT. Now, I won't go into what the. Oh, there was a total of 139 Bib Gourmand restaurants offering value for money dishes this year and included Taipei, Taichung, Tainan and Kaohsiung. But Ross, of course, you're a vegetarian, mate. So I'm obviously the Bib Gourmand really doesn't tickle your fancy. Uh, that's true. I won't be able to eat at most of the eateries that made the list. Uh, I will uh, make a critical comment, though. No surprise, I guess. that That's my style. It's nice to be ranked. You know, it's it's an honor to make these kinds of lists, even if uh, there might be subsidies from the government to get these publications to come to Taiwan and make these lists. Uh, but uh, from no, a, Ross, yeah. you don't say. Yeah, from from a from an inbound tourism perspective, um, I, I am a bit concerned. That's going to be my critical comment. And uh, I, I've had some personal interaction with with Mayor Huang in, in Tainan, and also from ob- observing him and other government officials. There seems to be a focus, uh, and I know this might not sound very nice, but uh, too much focus on low end. And uh, okay, you know, not all of us can afford the fanciest restaurants. I sure can't. Um, but from an inbound tourism perspective, there's too much focus, I think, on um, kind of the, the the backpacker, low end, young traveler market. And uh, now we're going to be really excited about some low priced eateries. And, and Tainan government's probably going to say, like, tourists are going to be coming here to eat in our low priced eateries. You know, actually, they're not. Right. No one's going to fly from uh, Europe or the United States just to eat uh, street food in Tainan. I mean, that's just the reality. You know, people need other reasons to come to Taiwan. But, but a thousand NT ahead in Tainan is—it's is already expensive. Should, <laughs> it's you can. I think you should get, be able to get a pretty good meal there. That's a pretty expensive me gal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, simultaneously, the government is talking about relaxing the restrictions on mainland tourists. Uh, that was in the news this week as well, because those are the spenders, right? So if you really want to energize the tourism industry, uh, that's really the most likely source of, of, of tourists who spend a good amount of money. And they spend it all over Taiwan as well, not just in Taipei, right? They get on the tour bus uh, and uh, wherever they go, they'll lead in the $1,000 eatery in Tainan, right? Because the tour 
agency will arrange to take them there and they'll say it's in the guide right but uh even the backpackers might not eat at the thousand all right they won't eat at the the 150 uh so uh again i'm concerned about the focus on the low end of the tourism market i have just a few random uh observations uh partly based on like i said i near i live near yongkong jia Yongkong Street in Taipei, and I see a lot of uh, Korean and Japanese, and even an increasing number of Thai tourists. Uh, I think it might not be a bad idea to, if it hasn't already been done, to translate these guides into those languages, because I think that the the kind of tourist who's there uh, could afford these restaurants and would probably be interested. A second point is I was really shocked looking at the Taipei list at the fact that I've eaten at almost none of these restaurants. And I feel like I know my way around Taipei's uh, culinary delights fairly well. Just goes to show that there's a lot more out there. There was a suspiciously high number of restaurants in Sherlin, though, which uh, um, uh, I was uh, a little bit taken aback by. The, the latest list is interesting because there's it's almost exclusively what we would now call Taiwanese food. There's almost nothing from pan Chinese cuisine uh, listed either in Taipei or Tainan or Taichung or anywhere else, which is an interesting ship, which gives me a chance to uh, have a shout out on Taiwanese cuisine to my uh, uh, friend Clarissa Wei, who has recently published a cookbook called Made in Taiwan, which not only includes recipes, but uh, the history and tries to make a case that there really is such a thing as Taiwanese food. So check it out if you're interested. So, Ross, you're a vegetarian. What's your favorite vegetarian Taiwanese cuisine? I tend to eat Western uh, vegetarian food because, you know, when people say vegetarian in Taiwan, they want to take you to those, you know, the zijutan, but vegetarian, which is a bit too greasy for me. Of course, there's other problems with vegetarian here, but you might get just take the meat off the plate. <laughs> uh, that happens a lot as well, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I'm a vegan, so you know people you know think they could just take the whipped cream off the top of the <laughs> of the coffee drink as well. You know, I have to ask them to remake it. I, I'm just a total problem child, Gavin. Oh, one last thing. I was also disappointed that uh, so far I don't think that there are any indigenous Taiwanese restaurants on either the past year's list or this year's list. Maybe they'll have to do that in future. Maybe they'll have just a, a whole island, maybe. The Michelin I, Guide to the whole island. It's not very big. Well, I, 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 think it may, I think it makes sense that they're focusing on Taipei, Taichung, and Tainan, especially Tainan now because it's becoming such a major tourist destination. Obviously, if you know some of the, the excellent indigenous restaurants are in faraway places, that's part of their charm. But for the casual tourists, they're less likely to go there. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Michael Fahey. Great to be here again, Gavin. And by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And there won't be a Taiwan This Week for the next two weeks, that being September the 1st and September the 8th. But the show will return on September the 15th. And in the meantime, don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.